several years ago, many, many years ago, when I was in graduate school, I remember being in a statistics class. And in the statistics class, you're doing surveys and statistics. That makes sense, doesn't it? And uh, I remember there was a, a young teacher in the, in the class, and she wanted to know what was the least to get by in a survey. And so generally you have a population and you survey these people and then you come to conclusions. And, and I remember she asked the teacher, what's the least amount of people to survey in a population in order to get an accurate count? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, every one of them. You know, we don't ever think of that, do we? We want to get the least amount and those kind of things. And, and that's kind of the way statistics is. It's kind of, you know, if I started quoting statistics, your, your eyes would roll in the back of your head and, and, and you would probably tune me out if you have it already. <laughs> but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that something is wrong. In, in our country, that something doesn't seem right, that the, the violence and the stuff that's going on is just not what God wants. There have been shootings and trials of black men and looting and riot, and we have just lacked a moral sense out there in our government before and after the election. And so what do, we, what do we do about it? Last week, we, uh, we had a scripture that we used from Ephesians chapter 6. And he said, finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. I think we need to take a stand there are times when we have to do that. A little bit later, uh, in the same passage, therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. And then he says, stand firm then. And then he goes on and talks about the full armor of God. Four times he uses that word stand. And I, I, I want to know what does it mean to stand? It's really a very simple uh, principle. It's very, very simple, but it's quite a challenge in practice. In, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is walking along the seashore, the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they're cleaning their nets, and he, and he comes up to them. And I've always wondered about this passage because I wonder if there were more than just those four people there. If there was a crowd of people, if James and John's parents were there, or Peter and Andrew's parents were there, or, or the co-workers, or, or just any number of people, Jesus simply says, follow me. That's why I wonder if there were more than, than those four, because those four left everything they had and walked away. 
Who took care of the, of the fishing business? Who took care of the boat? Who took care of the nets? Did those people just stay there while Peter, James, and John, and Andrew left? That's why I think there may have been others. But they took up that challenge and they followed Jesus. And later in Matthew chapter 9, uh, Jesus comes up to Matthew, who's a tax collector. And, and he comes up to him, and again, I, I wonder, you know, Matthew wasn't just sitting there by himself. Were there other people around that heard Jesus say to Matthew, follow me? Some took up the challenge, some didn't. Matthew decided to leave everything he had and to follow Jesus. And I wonder if even the other, however many, four, five, seven now, if the other seven, Jesus very simply asked them to follow me. Because you see, to follow Jesus means to take a stand. You remember the rich ruler who came to Jesus? There's a number of them, uh, of, of accounts in the, in the Gospels. And as you read them, it's kind of interesting. Uh, they come from very different uh, angles as far as that's concerned. But in every one of them, Jesus, one guy, you know, this, this rich ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? I always think it's interesting that he used that word inherit. There wasn't anything he wanted. You know, this is, a, this is a rich ruler. What can I do to get this without having to, to do too much? And Jesus says, I want you to keep the commandments. And, and the guy says, I've, I've kept these from, the youth, from my youth up. What, what do I lack? And Jesus very simply says to him, go out and sell everything you have. And follow me. I could go on and on because there are several examples of Jesus telling people to follow him. But there's one passage I want to give you. This is the passage right after Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, then Jesus said to the disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. Follow me. In essence, what Jesus told them was to take a stand. And that's the same call to all of us today. To follow Jesus. And I know it's speculation. But I, I wonder if Jesus were to walk in these doors today and come down here and, and occupy this pulpit, you know, would we expect him to expound on these great biblical passages? Would we think that he would uh, go into great detail? I, I almost think perhaps his message would probably be, I want you to follow me. Here's the thing. In following Jesus, we might waver. We might just kind of be hot and cold, as the passage we've just read. We'd be in good company if that happened. I'm not advocating it, but I think we'd be in good company. I think of Moses when God comes to him and he says, I want you to bring my people out. And Moses has all kinds of excuses. 
Who am I to do this? What should I say or who should I say sent me? And he says, what if they don't listen? And then he says, what if I'm, and I'm just not a very good speaker. And the Bible says God got angry with him. Why? Because he wouldn't follow him. Because even though he had all the chances, he wouldn't follow what God wanted him to do. There's a saying that says, if you want to make God laugh, show him your plans. I think there's a corollary to that that says, if you want to make God angry, don't follow him. Later, we find Moses interceding for the children of Israel. The Bible says that God changed his mind because of Moses. Peter said, if... If all fall away, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, even if I have to disown you, or even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And before we're too hard on old Peter, see what the rest of the verse says. It says, and all the disciples said the same. It's possible that you've wavered at some point. In fact, I would venture to guess that's true. Jesus told us to count the cost. I think I've told you this story before, but I remember going to Trinidad many years ago. And uh, Parker Henderson, who was the minister at the time, the missionary at the time, took us around the town uh, of San, uh, San, I think it was San Bernardino. Don't remember. It's been that long. We were driving around, and, and there were housing projects in different parts of the city. It was a very poor city. But at one place, and this was before the little satellite dishes, there was a huge satellite dish out in front. It was enormous. And the thing was, the house wasn't built. It wasn't finished. There were weeds growing around the satellite dish. And I remember what Parker said. Parker said, you got to count the cost. And it's the same thing with us to follow Jesus. We've got to count the cost. In fact, there was a passage, there is a passage of Scripture that talks about three different people coming to Jesus. One says, let let me go bury my father. Let me go say goodbye to my family. Jesus says, no, you've got to do this to follow me. We've got to count the cost. There's going to be some fair weather people. Things going good. We're good, good Christians. It's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Things going well. We're going to be gung-ho. We're going to be who is it. But things get bad we tend to kind of fall off. I, I use a lot of sports analogies, but it's interesting to me that a few years ago when the Kansas City Royals baseball team was doing real well and going to the World Series, a lot of people wore Kansas City Royals out uh, shirts and hats and things like that. You don't see very many of them today. Why is that? Because they're not doing very well. I won't say that about the Huskers because the Huskers fans are usually pretty good. And, and you'll notice I wear Razorback stuff all the time because they lose in football almost every week. In fact, people come up and try to pick a fight with me. 
They say, oh, you know, who, who the Razorbacks play this week? And I say, I don't know, we're going to lose. But there are some people who are like that, aren't there? People who are fair-weather fans. And this passage that the Sites family read from Revelation, and I know there are people, uh, commentators especially lately, that say, well, it doesn't really mean what we say it means. You know, there was a, a place near there that had ice-cold water. There was a place near there that had hot water. And, and, you know, Jesus is saying to those people, you know, be one or the other... I think it still says the same thing that we've been saying all along. You can't be lukewarm. You can't be fair weather and be a follower of Jesus. And that's why Jesus says the greatest command is to love God with everything that you have. And when everyone was worried about everything except being a disciple of Jesus. And I, this is, you talk about a go-to verse. If I'm talking to somebody whose life is struggling, if I'm talking to somebody about a job, this is a verse I go to. Very simply, it says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. In essence, what Jesus says there is, follow me. Thing is, when we make a stand, he won't leave us alone. He won't leave us to stand alone. I think of the mighty heroes of the Old Testament. I think of Daniel, who in spite of the fact that they came along and says, everybody has to bow down before this, this idol of the king. Daniel didn't do it. In fact, the scripture says, and I, I pointed this out before, it's an interesting scripture. It says, Daniel goes, as was his custom, and he goes and he prays and he gives thanks to God. That one always blows me away. Things are going bad. In fact, he might die. He might be thrown in the lion's den, and it says, he goes and thanks God. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to be thrown into the furnace and they look at each other and say, we will not do what you want us to do because our God will save us. But they don't leave it at that. They say, but if he doesn't, we will still follow him. I remember Esther when it looked like they were going to eradicate all the Jews. And Mordecai comes to her and says, don't think that because you're in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Jesus says, I will never leave you. And he says, I will leave the Spirit for you. And he will guide you in all truth. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you and on which you have taken your stand 
Even Paul refers to following Jesus in that way. I want to go back to one more scene. It's a scene that, that's kind of interesting to me. Peter has denied Jesus not only once but three times. Jesus turns and looks at him. And I, I've often, you know, I, I, I said I would love to see certain things. I would be afraid to see that scene because the look on Jesus' face. But he turns and he looks at Peter when the rooster crows. And Jesus is crucified. The apostles don't know what to do. In fact, Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to what I used to do. Jesus is gone. Even after the resurrection, he doesn't know what to do. And, and they go out fishing one night. And they, they just, and I, <laughs> believe me, uh, I've, I've been uh, on enough of these fishing trips to know what it's like not to catch anything. They didn't catch a thing. But right around sunrise, someone yells out to them and says, if you put your nets on the other side, And they put their nets on the other side and they come up with so many fish they had to get help. It almost broke their nets. There's somebody standing on the shoreline. There's a little fire going and Peter says, it's the Lord. And he can't wait for them to get there. He jumps in the water. When he comes up there, Jesus has a little fire going and and, and you know the scene. It's the feed my sheep discussion. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times he says that to him. And, and many people think he's restoring him. But at the end of that, John is following behind him. And Peter, it's my sense that he's trying to change the subject because Jesus has just nailed him. And he says, Lord, what about him? And Jesus told him something remarkable. He said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Jesus calls us very simply today to follow him.